Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. If you look at where humans have lived throughout history, you'll notice a bit of a pattern. We tend to cluster near water, rivers, lakes, coastlines. And there's good reasons for that. Water is awesome for drinking and fishing and harvesting shellfish, and also for travelling. For the vast majority of human history, travelling long distances overland kind of sucked. And Aotearoa was worse than most places. Māori had no beasts of burden like horses, so they had to carry everything on their backs. The interior of these islands were full of snow-covered mountains, dense bush, swamps and fast-flowing rivers. One wrong step could send you plunging off a cliff or swept down a rapid. To make things a bit easier and safer, there was a network of tracks crisscrossing the country. In fact, some of our modern state highways still follow these old Māori trails. But still, it was often hard going. So instead of making trips over land, Māori often paddled or sailed their waka. Rivers like the Whanganui and the Waikato were the original state highways of Aotearoa, the easiest ways in and out of the centre of the Ikea Māori, the North Island. After European arrival, waka were replaced by rowboats, sailing ships and eventually steamships. Roads and bridges were built for horse-drawn vehicles. Travel got a bit faster and easier, but it was nothing compared to what was about to happen. Starting in the 1860s, Aotearoa was swept along with a global transport revolution. The railway revolution. The railways changed everything. The country as we know it today, making its money from exporting agricultural products, timber and tourism, it all once relied on rail. Through to the late 20th century, the railways touched the lives of virtually every New Zealander. So, all aboard for an adventure into the history of New Zealand's railways. Toot toot! <laughs> Call William Ray tēnei. Call Mani Dunlop tēnei. And welcome to the Aotearoa History Show. Smoke bombs have been thrown on to Eden Park. Smoke bombs, flares, being an attempt to come onto the field. Last night, a most grievous railway accident took place at Tangiwai. We are marching to Parliament and no more land to be sold. It's hard to exaggerate just how big the railway revolution was. Like the fastest horse-drawn stagecoaches had a top speed of about 16 kilometres an hour. Early English trains could go up to 50 kilometres an hour. That's three times as fast. 50 k's might not seem that fast today, but in the 19th century, people said trains were so quick that they annihilated space and time. People in freight could travel faster, further and cheaper than ever before. 
New Zealand's first public railway was opened in 1863 from Christchurch to Ferrymead. That same year, work began on a railway tunnel connecting Christchurch to Littleton Port. Canterbury politician Henry Sewell described the tunnel as moonstruck madness, but by 1867 it was finished, and at the time it was one of the longest railway tunnels in the world. Other early railways were a bit less successful. Well, a lot less successful, actually. For example, also in 1863, a 12-kilometre route was opened from Invercargill to Makarewa. But to save money, Southern Province built the rails out of wood instead of iron. And there's a reason we don't usually make railways out of wood. The trains were so heavy they crushed and splintered the rails, and then sparks from the locomotives sometimes set them on fire. In the 1860s, rail building happened at a small scale, a few kilometres here or there. By 1870, New Zealand had only 74 kilometres of railway. That's about the distance from Manukau to Huntley. But everything was about to change. In 1870, Colonial Treasurer Julius Vogel announced a plan to build 1,600 kilometres of railways in nine years. Now that's enough railway to stretch from Cape Ranga to Redingawairua all the way down to Mirihiku and Bluff. 1870 marked the beginning of what's called the heroic era of New Zealand railway construction. By 1880, the rail network had jumped from 74 kilometres to more than 2,000. In 1892, it cracked 3,000. In 1909, it was over 4,000 kilometres long. By the 1920s, pretty much every significant town or city in Aotearoa had its own railway station. Often it was the most elaborate and impressive building in town. In 1953, the total length of the network peaked at 5,689 kilometres. That is enough railway to stretch halfway around the moon. There were all kinds of engineering masterpieces. Aotearoa is a country crisscrossed by mountain ranges, deep gorges and wide rivers. It took a lot to lay down tracks through that landscape. The most famous stretch of railway is the Rodimu Spiral, a cunning series of bends and tunnels which allows the North Island main trunk line to climb 146 metres over just two kilometres. Then there was the Rimutaka Incline, a fiercely steep stretch of rail which could only be crossed using special locomotives called foul engines, which clung to a third rail with an extra set of wheels mounted sideways. Not to mention the 8.5 kilometre Ōtera Tunnel through the Southern Alps, which was finished in 1923. It was so long, it had to use electric locomotives so that the smoke from steam engines wouldn't poison people and reduce the performance of the locomotive. As historian Neil Atkinson writes in his book, Train Lands. The railway network was arguably the New Zealand state's greatest achievement, and certainly its greatest financial commitment. Between 1870 and 1929, the £52 million devoted to rail construction accounted for 48% of expenditure from the central government's public works fund. More than state spending on roads and highways, telegraphs, public buildings, immigration, tourism, defence, lighthouses, harbour works and mining put together. All that spending caused some problems, because to build that big, we had to borrow big. 
the massive loans which financed railways put the New Zealand government in a tricky spot when a global economic crisis hit Aotearoa in the 1880s and 1890s. And the costs of railways weren't just financial, they were also environmental. New Zealand Railways' biggest clients were the logging and farming industries. If the railways had never been built, the giant forests of Kauri and Rimu, which once cloaked much of the North Island, might still be standing today. But arguably the biggest cost of the railways was paid by Māori. As Neil Atkinson writes... Julius Vogel hoped that immigrants, roads and railways would spearhead a peaceful Pākehā conquest of the Māori heartland. Profitable employment on public works would hasten the integration of Māori into the European economy, while an influx of settlers would swamp the local Māori population. Building railways into Māori land often created serious tensions. Historian Andre Brett describes one particularly nasty example in his book, Can't Get There From Here. It happened when a line was being built from New Plymouth to Waitara, constructed in 1875. Construction of a railway through a Māori urupā, or burial ground, proceeded, despite strong protests that culminated in the kidnapping of the contractor's seven-year-old daughter. The girl was found decades later, living contentedly by her own account in a Māori community near Whakatane. The North Island's main trunk line between Wellington and Auckland also came with a wagon load of controversy. It was built over a 40-year period between the late 1860s and 1908. The real sticking point was the central section of the line, which cut through Te Rohe Pōtai, the king country, one of the last parts of Aotearoa where Māori still lived autonomously. As Neil Atkinson writes... The railway drove an iron wedge into the Māori heartland of the central North Island, creating a permanent way for European colonisation. Many Māori were concerned the railways would accelerate colonisation and the loss of land. In 1883, the famous religious leader Te Koti warned Māori to beware the whistling god of the Pākehā, a monster belching flames and smoke. That same year, two surveyors were captured by the prophet Te Mahuki, who strongly opposed the railways. They were held for three days before being released. But other Māori, like the Ngāti Mania Poto Rangatira, Riwi Mania Poto, and Wahanui Huatari, hoped the railways would create new opportunities for trade and employment. So, after lengthy negotiations, Ngāti Mania Poto agreed to allow the main trunk line across their land. Both Rangatira attended a ceremony to turn the first sod of the central section of the line in 1885. But the hope railways would bring prosperity for Māori went unfulfilled. As Te Kōti predicted, Te Rohe Pōtai was opened up to colonisation. The Native Land Court transferred much of the central North Island to colonial farmers, and in the end it was those farmers, not Māori, who profited most from the railways. Railways were also controversial among Pākehā. Local politicians fought tooth and nail to get the best service. Quite often, railways were built more to win votes in important electorates than because they gave the best economic and social benefit. As Minister of Railways William Hall-Jones complained in 1908... 
First it's a siding, then a platform, then a railway porter, then a station master. You'd be surprised how these requests follow each other. Sometimes debates over railways got really intense. Like when the first Christchurch train pulled into Timaru in 1876, the celebrations turned into a shouting match between politicians. One guest was dragged away by the police. But despite all these problems, railways bound the country together politically. Up until the 1870s, Aotearoa wasn't really a country like we think of it today. Instead, it was a collection of provinces. Each was governed more or less independently by a provincial assembly. And that made a lot of sense. How could a Southland MP stay in touch with their constituents when it could take weeks to make a round trip from Invercargill to Wellington on a sailing ship? Railways changed everything. Suddenly that kind of trip could be made just in a matter of days. Trains also sped up communication by delivering letters, magazines and newspapers. Plus telegraph lines were often built alongside the rails, allowing near instantaneous communication. Reducing travel times and increasing the speed of communication helped people think of New Zealand as a nation, rather than as a collection of provinces. Railways also had a social impact at a local level, especially for isolated rural communities. Sociologist Crawford Somerset wrote this about the train from Oxford to Christchurch in the 1930s. The train was as much a meeting place as a means of conveyance, a kind of club on wheels. Everyone knew everyone else, and so a trip to town had the excitement of a dozen neighbourly visits in one. The silence of people who work in the isolation of farming was broken in talk, and one arrived in town briefed and relaxed with the latest gossip. Railways also had a massive impact on the New Zealand economy, especially our agriculture. Farmers no longer had to spend days or weeks driving cattle and sheep across the land. They could just stick them on a stock train and they'd be at their destination in a few hours. So while building railways was really expensive, most politicians were enthusiastic about opening new lines all over Aotearoa. Towns, cities, mines and ports were woven together in a web of iron rails. The first few decades of the 20th century are often described as a golden age of New Zealand rail. There's a huge amount of romance involved. It's hard to look at old films showing K-class locomotives sweeping past the Southern Alps without feeling a twinge of nostalgia. It's no wonder one of our most famous folk songs is about travelling on the railways. You can get to town Renui, going north or going south, and you end up there at midnight and you've cinders in your mouth. You've cinders in your whiskers and a cinder in your eye So you pop off to refreshments for a cup of tea and pie In Taumrenui, Taumrenui, Taumrenui on the main trunk line But that nostalgia misses out some of the dirty bits of this supposed golden age. Like, just listen to this guy described what it was like working on a fell engine as it went through a tunnel while fighting its way up the Rimutaka incline. You didn't dare leave any bare skin exposed. A steam, uh, exhaust steam would come in under the door and in every cranny that it could. I always felt sorry for livestock, particularly pigs in the top deck, which scream all the way through the tunnel from the heat from the steam. And while travelling by train has always been much safer than travelling on the road, there were some serious accidents. 
most famously the Tangiwai disaster. On Christmas Eve 1953, the laha from Mount Huapihu swept away the bridge at Tangiwai, and the overnight express from Wellington to Auckland plunged into the Whangaihu River. 151 of the 285 people on board were killed, including many children. More might have died if it not for the driver, Charlie Parker, and the fireman, Lance Redman, who both died at the controls trying to stop the train. They were alerted by Cyril Ellis, who ran towards the train waving a torch and pulled many survivors from the wreckage. The disaster coincided with Queen Elizabeth's first trip to Aotearoa. She addressed the tragedy in a special broadcast the next day. Last night, a most grievous railway accident took place at Tangiwai, which will have brought tragedy into many homes and sorrow into all upon this Christmas day. While travelling on trains was ordinarily pretty safe, the jobs of building and maintaining the railways could be dangerous. We're talking about big, heavy, often fast-moving machinery. Accidents happened, sometimes fatal ones. But still, it's hard not to be impressed by the sheer scale of the railways in this era. In 1923, New Zealand Railways carried 14.2 million passengers and 6 million tonnes of freight. Which isn't bad, considering the New Zealand population was just 1.2 million. Keeping everything moving was an army of nearly 16,000 workers, which made the Railways Department the biggest employer in the country. In fact, the Railways Department employed so many people that it set up its own housing scheme for workers. It was one of the first examples of social housing in Aotearoa. In 1923, the department built a factory in Hamilton which churned out these houses in pieces, stacked them on trains, then sent them all over the North Island to be assembled on site. Nearly 1,600 houses were built for rail workers, including entire suburbs like Frankton and Hamilton and Moira in Lower Hutt. Some of them are still around today. Tarikaka Street in Wellington has a bunch of them. At the same time, massive engineering workshops employed thousands of engineers and mechanics. They also trained up the next generation of workers through apprenticeship schemes. Railways triggered the birth of New Zealand's tourism. That whole idea of getting away to the beach for a long weekend or overseas tourists heading to Rotorua or Queenstown to see our natural wonders, that all got started thanks to trains. People would crowd the platform for summer holidays. Many also booked tickets on special excursion trains on the weekends. The railways were an important part of Māori urban migration too. They helped urban Māori keep up connections with whānau in different parts of the country. Along the way, passengers could read a magazine printed by the department. It was mostly an internal publication for railway staff, but it also published poems, articles and short stories by some of our most famous writers like James Cowan, Robin Hyde and Dennis Glover. Generations of kids travelled to school on trains. They were strictly segregated by gender, but those rules were regularly broken. Yeah, one Tepuki high school student said he and other boys would often climb onto the top of the carriage, walk along the roof, and drop down at the rear of the girls' car. School kids often travelled by trains, and they travelled for free. 
so did livestock on their way to A&P shows, and those were far from the only discounted services. There were discounts for excursion trains. Discounts for Māori attending tangihanga. Discounts for fertiliser shipments. Discounts for sports teams. Discounts for fresh fruit and veggies. All these discounts were a massive drain on public finances. But funnily enough, there wasn't much appetite to get rid of them. In 1923, the Railways Minister and future Prime Minister, Gordon Coates, wrote... The railways in New Zealand have never been regarded or run as a profit-making concern. If it were guided solely by considerations of financial return, then much greater profits could be earned. But in my view, this would not be utilising the service in the true interests of the Dominion. That's pretty enthusiastic support for government spending from a guy whose election slogan had been more business and government, less government and business. But it's not surprising so many politicians supported the railways. Railways were insanely popular, and they were tied up in New Zealand's national identity. For example, a train called the Passchendaele was built in Christchurch and named in honour of soldiers killed in the First World War. It's still in operation today. New Zealand rail teacups were a famous icon of this country in the 20th century, and they're still a popular collector's item today. So, what happened? If railways were so extensive and popular back in the mid-20th century, why is the passenger network so much smaller today than it once was? A big part of the story is the rise of new transport technologies, cars, trucks and passenger aircraft. Automobiles started to arrive in Aotearoa in the 1920s and 30s, but they really took off after World War II. New Zealand Railways tried all kinds of strategies to adapt to this competition. In 1936, a law was passed banning trucks from carrying certain types of goods more than 50 kilometres. It was argued that competition between trucks and trains would only drive up prices for customers and create inefficiencies. On the passenger side of things, the Railways Department took a different approach. If you can't beat them, join them. In 1926, New Zealand Railways bought a bus company in Hawke's Bay, and buses increasingly replaced passenger trains, well, pretty much everywhere. This was partly because New Zealand Railways didn't have to pay to maintain roads, but it did have to pay to maintain railway tracks. So if it could close down a railway line and replace it with a bus service, that saved the railway department a huge amount of cash, even if it ultimately cost the taxpayer more money and provided a worse service. There was also just a general vibe among many government officials that railways were old-fashioned. The cool new thing was motorways. Spending tax dollars on rail instead of roads was like buying an old landline phone instead of a new smartphone. Shame. That vibe wasn't always shared by the general public, though. Decisions to reduce rail services often got heavy opposition from locals. But as the trains got older and more run down through lack of investment, fewer and fewer people wanted to ride in them, until eventually services were cut altogether. Today, commuter rail only really survives in Wellington and Auckland. Passenger trains still run along the main trunk lines in the North and South Island, but they're mostly for tourists. The decline of passengers hasn't spelled an end to railways, though. A huge amount of freight still travels on rails today. But as with passenger services, trains have struggled to compete with trucks. The regulations banning long-distance trucks were steadily eased and then completely removed in the 1980s. 
These days, a lot of people are calling for a return to rail and point to how things might have gone differently. For example, as far back as the 1950s, there was a proposal to completely electrify the North Island main trunk line. If that had happened, it might have led to wider electrification of rail all over Aotearoa. Instead, the government decided to convert the fleet to diesel locomotives. These days, rail advocates argue increased rail services could be a key part of fighting climate change. Freight trains are estimated to produce about 70% fewer carbon emissions than trucks. In 2021, the government set up a new commuter rail service between Hamilton and Auckland and aimed to increase rail freight by 40% by 2052. So potentially the history of rail could be opening a brand new chapter. We'll just have to wait and see what's coming down the tracks. Thanks for listening to the Aotearoa History Show. Make sure to follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or whatever podcasting app you use. You can also find a video version of this show on YouTube. If you want more New Zealand history podcasts from RNZ, why not check out the New Zealand War Series or Black Sheep or Eyewitness. You can find them all at our website, rnz.co.nz forward slash podcasts. The Aotearoa History Show was made with support from the Ministry of Education. It's hosted by William Ray and Marnie Dunlop. It was written and produced by William Ray, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. Our director is Duncan Smith, and our sound engineers are Phil Benge, William Saunders and Mark Chesterman. We had historical and editorial support from Mike Stevens, David Green, Bronwyn Houliston and Matai Smith. And a huge thanks to the dozens of reporters, presenters, producers, complaints managers and others at RNZ who lent their voice acting talents to the show. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.